If you will, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, and while you're turning there, if you're visiting with us or if you haven't been here in, in some time, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John systematically, week by week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeing all of the truths that are revealed about Christ in this Gospel, because as you make your way through this Gospel, you see all different types of beautiful elements about the Savior. We, we saw in the very beginning that He is the divine Son of God who has eternally existed from before the foundation of the world. He is the very Creator Himself. He is the One through whom all grace is poured out upon guilty sinners. And as we make our way through this Gospel of John, all of these beautiful elements of Jesus that we saw in the very beginning of chapter 1 are then elaborated on and then illustrated even more in the different events and occasions of His ministry. And so we come this morning, or we pick up at least, in John chapter 3, as Jesus has been talking back and forth with Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, about some some difficult truths that are hard to understand, especially for for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as we've seen, is a, a man who, as a man of Pharisees, believed himself to be righteous, believed himself to be right with God, and yet Jesus was saying to Nicodemus that he was not believing the testimony of Christ, he was not receiving the doctrines that he was communicating to him, and that most importantly, Nicodemus was not going to be able to enter the kingdom of God unless something vital happened to him, namely, the new birth. This was something that was incomprehensible to Nicodemus. And yet Jesus says it is necessary that God divinely work a miracle in the lives of any individual if they are to see His kingdom. We saw last, or the week before last, where Jesus makes an allusion to an Old Testament occasion where Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness so that anyone who looked upon the serpent would be saved from the judgment of God. And Jesus said this is what must happen to him. He must be lifted up. And so we we pick up now in John chapter 3, verse 16. And what I want to do is just read from verse 16 to verse 18 this morning. So John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we come to the words of your Son that are packed full of truth that can humble the pride of any man. We come, Lord, to your Son communicating to guilty sinners the unfathomable love of God for a fallen and corrupt world. Lord, we pray that this this word that is spoken, a word that we have certainly heard, quoted, and read many times, would not just enter into our minds and quickly leave. Father, we pray that the, the full weight and magnitude of every word that is spoken here would penetrate into the depths of our souls so that we would rejoice in the gospel of God. We pray for your spirit to do the work that you have sent him into the world to do, to convict guilty sinners of their absolute desperate need for salvation. And it calls us to cry out to Christ for that salvation that is provided. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Malcolm Muggeridge was a popular British journalist early 19th or 1900s and into the later 1900s, into the 20th century, who for much of his life was an agnostic, but was later greatly influenced by Mother Teresa and eventually later joined the Roman Catholic Church because of that influence. Muggeridge wrote several books, including an autobiography, And in his autobiography, he tells a very powerful story about a certain time when he was working in India as a journalist. There was one evening where he left the place where he was staying, his his residence, to go to a nearby river to have a swim. When he came to the river, he got in, And he looked across the river and he saw an Indian woman also getting in the river to have a bath. Immediately, Muggeridge felt the allurement of temptation. Almost by impulse, his mind began racing with all different kinds of thoughts. His mind began racing with a mirage of a deceitful fantasy, momentary pleasure. For years, he had struggled with this very kind of 
temptation. Often only able to escape it because of the commitment he had made to his wife, Kitty. But on this occasion, he began to entertain the idea of crossing the line into marital infidelity. For a brief moment, he wrestled with it. A brief moment. And then he began swimming furiously towards her. As one commentator even wrote about literally trying to outdistance his own conscience. As he swam, his mind was filled with excitement. He was believing. He was believing the deceitful lie that was in his mind. That on the other side of the river was life. On the other side of the river was pleasure and excitement and experience and joy. His fantasies, all of his fantasies were soon to become realities. And so he swam vigorously with his emotions running high. But when he had come to just a few feet away from her, he emerged from the water, and all of his emotions, all of his excitement, everything that had gripped him so tightly, quickly crumbled before him. He looked at her. And Mugrid said when he looked at her, she was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, She was a leper. Then he said, this creature, you can hear the disdain, this creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. Muggeridge was shaken. And the whole experience, initially, didn't make him feel guilt or shame. The disappointment and the way that the woman responded to him, the way that she looked at him and smiled at him, made Muggeridge angry. And he muttered under his breath, what a dirty, lustful woman. And it was almost immediately as he said that, As he muttered those words, it was as if his conscience had caught up to him. And he realized it was not the woman who was lustful. It was his own heart. I begin this morning with this story because it is a story which powerfully illustrates the human condition. Here we have a man who by all outward, worldly accounts is a good, moral, responsible man. He's a journalist working overseas. But who on the inside, in the heart, 
where only God and the conscience can see he was full of all kinds of evil. Here we have a man whose heart was so corrupt and twisted and deceived that he was willing to break the heart of his own beloved wife. He was willing to cast his covenant of marriage into the wind all for something that wasn't even real. A fantasy. That's how sin works. It convinces us of fantasies, of realities that aren't even true, of things that only exist within our minds. It feeds us, as it were, a grand feast that's all laced with cyanide. This was a man who by all outward accounts was good, moral, but on the inside was full of sin. And here we have a man who is no different from any of us. We have to begin, we have to begin here with this confession that he is just like us. Because it's only here as we acknowledge the truth of our own pitiful situation. As, as we acknowledge our own moral corruption, it is only as we begin here with this confession that the force of the passage we're in this morning will have its true effect. We are in a passage this morning that is a beloved passage by many. For God so loved the world. It is a passage that reveals the glorious truth of God's radical love and the unpredictable extent He goes to demonstrate it. But it is also a passage that we will not truly appreciate and we will not truly be humbled by if we do not begin with the full weight of the truths which surround John 3.16. There is a foundational truth. There's a starting point that Jesus has and that we must share if we are to grasp in, in some human measure the extent and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God that is revealed here. And that starting point, that foundational truth we must begin with, is the plight of the human condition. If we don't have this starting point, if we don't begin here, the love of God is just something we expect. The love of God is something we take for granted. Of course God loves the world. Of course God loves me. How could you not love me? Everybody loves me. It's something we take for granted. It's something we believe we deserve. 
But if we have this starting point, if we begin with this foundation of the plight of the human condition, the love of God that is revealed here is something that fundamentally changes us. It's it's something that humbles us to the ground. Jesus says two things in particular here about the human condition. He is continuing his conversation with Nicodemus, teaching him about the necessary new birth one must have in order to enter the kingdom of God. And and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he's also teaching about his own vital role, his, his own part in bringing about eternal life for these people. For people who need to be born again. He said in verse 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is a reference, as we saw, to His own death, chiefly and as well to His own exaltation. And now, beginning in verse 16, He begins to explain why this is all necessary. He he begins to elaborate a little bit more on verses 14 and 15 and why it is all happening. And it is in this context that he says two very important truths about the human condition. Number one, it is perishing. It is perishing. Humanity in its present state, as it exists in the world, as we see it, as it is presently, is rapidly running towards the edge of a cliff full of jagged rocks while also believing that at the edge of the cliff is a bed of pillows. Jesus takes as a given that that is not the case. He says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That assumes, this is an assumption here, that assumes that the current trajectory of humanity is one of death. That's the direction it's moving. Jesus here is not aiming to give some philosophical or rational defense of the doctrine of hell. He's not interested in the slightest bit of proving here its truthfulness, and He's not worried about how well this truth is going to be received by Nicodemus or any others. That seems to be a concern that that really bother people these days. We don't really want to talk about the world perishing. If we're doing any kind of evangelism or we're speaking about the Gospel to anyone we know, we don't, we don't really want to bring up the plight of the human condition. That in the state of unbelief, the only thing on the horizon is hell. That's not encouraging. That's not going to uplift anyone. That's what we want to do. Some would even say that to, to speak of, of perishing, of eternal death, 
That's not, that's not Christ-like. When Jesus himself, speaking of it here. Jesus does not concern himself with the politics of it all. He simply takes it as a given. And he's not reached this conclusion about the perishing of mankind because he has been convinced by some argument. He assumes its truth because he's the Son of God who's come down from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He is the eternal Word who has become flesh. He says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He is speaking with the authority of one who knows intimately because He determines it the beginning from the end. Moreover, Jesus knows the severity of this perishing. In various places throughout the Gospel, He describes the final state of perishing as an eternal fire, as an eternal punishment, hell, Hades, a place of torment, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of darkness. This this is Jesus describing perishing in the Gospels. So when Jesus assumes the perishing condition of humanity, friends, this is not just that we die. This is that the full eternal consequences of rebelling against an infinite God, against our infinite Creator, the eternal consequences only begin at death. That's the first truth we see about the human condition here. The second is that we are legally condemned. We are legally condemned. The perishing of the human condition is the future result of the legal judgment that has already been declared. It follows the judgment. Jesus says in verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's condemned already. I've had conversations with people before about Christianity and and the Gospel. And in some of these conversations, it's inevitably been the result that many have not wanted anything to do with the Gospel. They've not cared one bit about Christianity or Christ. And the reasons for each person always vary. The reasons are as numerous as there are people. For some, like Mormons, they are tied to their particular 
religion, their particular traditions, fully convinced that the burning sensation that they once felt within their hearts was divine revelation from God telling them that the Book of Mormon and the testimony of Joseph Smith was true. They had some mystical experience that they took to be the divine revelation of God to them. So when it comes to the Gospel, they reject. For some, it's the cultural winds combined with the ignorance of what Christianity actually teaches that has led them to reject Christianity as nothing more than some ancient, oppressive, bigoted religion. A religion that's nothing more than closed-minded hypocrisy. And still for others, it is the skeptical objection. That because I do not have some observable, testable miracle of God to me directly, something that I with my own eyes and my own ears can verify, I have no reason to believe. So I won't. With all of the different reasons that are given, I found it interesting how often in my own conversations or how often in in books I've read or in debates I've listened to, how often I've heard people reject Christ and say something to the effect of, when I die, I'll go before God and I'll, I'll, I'll lay out my case for, for why I didn't believe. I'll go to God and with all confidence in the world, I will say, God, there, there just wasn't enough evidence. Or, or God, I was just convinced of this, this other religion. And surely, He'll understand. As if, there's actually going to be a trial in the future where people are going to come before God and present to Him evidence that He just didn't know. He's going to be surprised by what He hears. When in actuality, the trial has already taken place and the judgment has already been rendered. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. The human condition is one of legal guilt, not legal neutrality. The reason we see in so many different religions people working so hard to achieve some kind of righteous standing before the unknown deity that they serve, whether through praying or fasting or giving alms, the reason we see even the non-religious so quick to justify themselves before others, to assert their own moral superiority in contrast to others is because over us all hangs the legal sentence of guilty. It covers 
All of humanity. Jesus says in verse 19, Men love darkness. Men love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Matthew 15, 19, He says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The core of our being is in rebellion against our Creator. And as a result, we stand legally condemned by the demands of justice and are simply moving towards the day of execution. That is the human condition. It is bleak. It is like walking into a cave and seeing nothing but blackness. The Bible, as you go through it, hardly has anything positive to say about humanity in its present state. There are some things you can find in the book of Proverbs about what it is to be a good, righteous friend and things of that nature. But as far as what we are by nature, it is bleak. It is bad news. But friends, it is, it's the bad news that we begin with as the foundation that makes the gospel so much more sweet. It is the state in which we are in that makes the revelation of the love of God that which humbles us. That condition of despair is met with a beam of light. This fallen and broken world is the very same world that Jesus is referring to when He says, for God so loved the world. This fallen, corrupt, broken, rebellious, at enmity with God place. He loves it. He so loves the world. This is... This is why, friends, some theologians have called the love of God a scandalous love. How can it be? How can it be that the God whose eyes are too pure even to look at evil can be said to love the world? To love humanity in its State in its human condition. You see, many people, many people cannot imagine how it could be that God could ever judge people for all eternity. That's, that's the stumbling block that they have. And that's the stumbling block because the foundation and the starting point they begin with is wrong. They begin with the foundation 
of our moral goodness or moral neutrality. And so it only makes sense that God would naturally love us. And it makes no sense that there would ever be an eternal punishment. That's why there's a stumbling block. The scandal, though, the scandal from the Bible's perspective is how this holy God could ever love sinful human beings. They are the only creature in all of the earth that willfully rebels against its Maker. The only one. And yet, that is what we see here. We see God loving the world. And this love, friends, is not some mere sentiment. It's not merely some feeling that God is expressing to us in the midst of chaos. It is a love that acts. And a love that costs. Not us, but Him. Jesus says that God the Father, out of His love, Gave His only Son. In verse 17, He sent His Son into this world. Into enemy territory. Not to condemn it, but to save it through Him. The love of God goes beyond sentiments and into the realm of sacrifice. There is only one person, one person who has enjoyed the blessed fellowship of the presence of God from all eternity. That is the Son of God. The Son of God is equal with God. John says in the beginning of the Gospel that the Son of God has always been in the bosom of the Father. Always been at the side of the Father. Always been in perfect, loving fellowship and communion with the Father. Jesus says in John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Verse 23, the Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son. God's love for His Son is an eternal and incomparable love. And yet He gives His Son to a world that is His sworn enemy. I remember watching a documentary a while back about some American soldiers who were fighting in Afghanistan. And in the documentary, the soldiers would recount different battles that they were engaged in, different things that they had seen on the battlefield. Well, this one soldier told the story of a certain firefight he was engaged in with his, his men. All of his fellow soldiers had been surrounded by the Taliban. They were, they were hearing bullets whizzing over their heads. The, you know, the trees were being burst apart from all of the, the bullets flying everywhere. There were people who were being killed. Their fellow soldiers were being shot up 
arms, legs, everywhere. But this one thing he described stood out. He said that there was a moment when he, as well as some of these other soldiers, were in a ditch taking cover. And when they were in the ditch, the soldier looked over and immediately he saw a grenade fall into the ditch. And when the grenade fell into the ditch, one of the other soldiers jumped on top of it. And he took the blow. He saved the life of his men. He saved the life of his buddies. He gave up his own life, took the blow of the grenade. Those stories are not uncommon in the battlefield. Men sacrifice their lives for their friends. But imagine if in the midst of a battle, a soldier were to see a grenade land next to a Taliban soldier. And he were to jump on that grenade so that the Taliban soldier was not to die that his enemy would have his life saved. It's kind of scandalous to think about. In a certain measure, that's exactly what Christ has done on behalf of his enemies. That is the nature of the love of God that is being demonstrated Christ sacrifices His own life for those who are His enemies. The Apostle Paul writes about this very demonstration of love in Romans 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were rebels, Christ died for us. Why does His death, why does His death for us matter? Because when Christ died on the cross, our human condition of being legally guilty, our human condition of approaching the sentence of death, our entire record of sin was transferred to Him on the cross. He willingly took the penalty of our sin upon Himself, so that the penalty against us, so that the punishment due to us, so that the legal declaration against us would be no more. He died in our place. He jumped on the grenade for us, His enemy. This is why Charles Wesley wrote one of his hymns, Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He knew the depths of his sin. 
And even though the depths of his sin were great, thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Friends, that is why, that is why we call the Christian message, the gospel, good news. That is why we celebrate it as it truly is. That is why we are willing to make sacrifices of our own financially to support the cause of spreading this message abroad. That is why there are Christians whom God raises up to go overseas into dark regions to proclaim this message, even if it means the cost of their own lives. It's that good. It's a treasure worth sharing and celebrating with everyone. With the world. Because it is a message about God's love for that broken world. Jesus here teaches Nicodemus and us not only what God has done for the world, but how we might receive the benefits of this grace. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Friends, do You believe this. That is the central question. Do I believe in the desperate situation I am in as a fallen creature? Am I not trying to whitewash the realities of my own heart? Am I not trying to justify my own goodness before my neighbors and my own morality and religiosity and formalism before others because I recognize I am a condemned sinner. Do I see within myself what Malcolm Muggridge saw within his heart? It is my own heart that is the beginning of my troubles. And do you believe the promises of Christ Himself. That even despite our fallen nature, if we but trust in this Son of God, the punishment will not be there. And even more, even more, eternal life will be granted. Life! Life! We've never known life. We've never known life. We have walked in a world of death. There is not one generation among men who has not experienced the crushing blows of the final penalty of death as well as the sin that leads to it. It is something we all know deeply. And yet, Christ promises something to us we have never known. Life for eternity. Do you believe? Do you believe? 
You know what belief is, friends? Belief, as I've said before, is not just the assent to these propositions. Belief is like being stranded in an ocean that is tossing you every which away and you are about to drown. And someone out of nowhere comes and plucks you out of your desperate situation. You cling on to them with every last bit of strength you have. That's belief. That's trust. Christ my God has died for me and even though I am a sinner, if I but cling to Him, I shall enjoy life. That is a message, friends, that is good news to be proclaimed to all. So, friends, let us not be weary, be afraid of declaring this. Because you have experienced, many of you have experienced this grace, so also can this grace be experienced by others. I just want to close with one example. Many of you have been praying for the program living at Hope House. We had them come and give a presentation on what was going to be going on. Men suffering in the chains of all kinds of addictions, coming to live in a Christian house, learning what it is to work hard, More importantly, learning what the Gospel is. Hope House has been doing this work. I've been going every couple of weeks as well, leading Bible studies. And just a few weeks ago, two of the men there, two of the men there made credible professions of faith in Christ. They had heard the Gospel. They had seen their sin. They had recognized that depravity. These men... We have been praying for. God has answered the prayers. They became believers. They were baptized. Friends, this grace that we have known, that we have experienced, is a grace that is not just for us, but it is indeed for the world. And as we open our mouths regularly and communicate these truths to people, God will pluck sinners from the grave. So let us rejoice in the power of the Gospel, and be willing to sacrifice our lives to propagate it abroad. Would you pray with me?